0: Breaking down those barriers, Mm -hmm. you know, breaking down, you know, traditional grievances that are for what? For nothing. Yeah. For nothing. They're rubbish, right? You know, and bringing people together. And you know what brings people together? It's money, right? It's wealth. It's opportunity, Mm -hmm. you
1: know? In any
0: society. In any society. In any society.
1: G'day, inshallah My name is Ninos Kanan. Welcome to episode 194 of the Assyrian Podcast. This episode is brought to you by all of us here at the Assyrian Podcast. We love bringing you stories of Assyrians from around the world, and we hope you continue to listen and share our episodes. A broadcaster in Australia had a great slogan, six billion stories and counting. We always ask you, our listener, for any tips on who we can feature. Not because we really need interesting stories, but because every story is interesting. On that, today's guest I've known for a few years. We usually meet for a coffee in downtown Sydney and talk about the world. They're pretty blunt conversations, sometimes even confronting, but that's important. It's how we grow as people. While the usual course is for a professional to get educated and then embark on their career, Our guest did the reverse. He began working and then sought higher education. It gives him a different insight and aura, that's for sure. Our regular coffee meets involve lots of talk about geopolitics, and I certainly didn't shy away from it in this episode. We Assyrians are dispossessed. We're victims of history, we're still punished by it today. We've been at the butt-end of intersecting empires, and I really think geopolitics is an integral part of understanding our plight. Today's guest writes about geopolitics for the South China Morning Post. For those who don't know, the South China Morning Post is the premier English-language newspaper in all of Asia. The message of our conversation always points to one objective, freedom through wealth. Not in a Robert Kiyosaki sense, but rather a kind of a Black Panther-style message. A message of self-sufficiency and empowerment. With that, I'll leave you to it. Short and punchy. Dr. George Murano, our guest this week, episode 194. Yalla, let's go. George Murano, welcome to the Assyrian Podcast.
0: Thank you for having me, Ninos.
1: It's my pleasure. Did you like the steak? (laughs)
0: That was very nice. You've done very well.
1: (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) We had a steak. I brought him over for a steak. Uh, I think uh, that's what I need to do to, to get guests... Uh, these days, but... Uh, I'm a very
0: cheap guest. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it a good steak. It was a good steak. Thanks for coming. It's my pleasure. I've known you for four years? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, four years. I'm a, a bit of a weirdo. Like, I, I Googled you, and the first thing I saw were the articles, but we're going to talk about that later. Yeah. But one thing that I found to be interesting is your background. Uh, so, could you tell us where you were born?
0: Yeah, I was born here in Australia. Mm-hmm. We were born. Well, I was born in 1977 in the old Fairfield Hospital for all yeah, for yeah, those yeah. who who can remember. Yeah, and we've been living in the same house since uh, January 1978. My mother still lives at the same at the same residence, so, and that's in Bosley Park. Wow. But uh, but yeah, I've done quite a bit of a full circle around the world, and then come back to Sydney again.
1: Yeah, yeah. You work in consulting right now?
0: Yeah, i I have a, I own my own strategic management consulting firm. But
1: how did you start in in the industry?
0: Well, I um <clears throat> I originally was a, a senior consultant over at Deloitte's mm-hmm. And then COVID hit and I um you know, as the you know, I was a contractor with them uh and that that engagement terminated. Um, and then you know, halfway through uh, um, <clears throat> COVID nineteen, I decided to do it for myself. Mm-hmm. I thought I'd you know, as they say in Assyrian, "mamor <laughs> and and um, you, know, uh, you know, the very common term. Yes. Uh, for those who don't, who aren't, who don't speak Assyrian, it means, you know, to um, trouble your head, right? So in a literal sense. Give yourself which may, a headache. Yeah, yeah. Give yourself a headache. So uh so I started my own firm and I mean this is uh, we're coming on to two years now and um, yeah we're I'm happy with the progress, but uh, I think there's uh, bigger and brighter things. but
1: tell us about the very beginning so what was your first job when you finished school?
0: <clears throat> oh, my first job in school was I was in the I worked in a mail room delivering mail for a stockbroking firm mm-hmm. back in 1997. Mm-hmm. And I was in the financial markets up until 2008 okay so I worked for a lot of stockbroking firms and then the last the last part of my uh, my uh, my engagement with the financial markets was as a hedge fund trader mm-hmm. and uh, I kind of uh, rode that wave of you know of what they call market ex- you know market exuberance uh, through 2006 2007 and then 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 that crash in 2008. I was uh, a front seat uh, viewer in all that.
1: Yep, yep. What happened after the GFC?
0: Well, after the GFC, I... um,
1: By the way, GFC is what Australians call the global financial crisis. crisis.
0: Yeah, so after that, I ended up in Indonesia. I I kind of was in a bit of la-la land, like many other people, uh, after that kind of cataclysmic uh, event. Yeah. I ended up... Assisting some guys who had a mine, who were setting up a mining company in Indonesia, and they were predominantly engineers and geologists and so forth, and they needed somebody with a bit of financial market background to help with, you know, a few of the financials as well as getting some offtake and so forth for their because it was a coal mining project. What's offtake? Offtake is you kind of pre-sell, you pre-sell production to uh, either traders or end users or so forth. okay and because of my financial markets background I could I could I could price it and negotiate the terms and conditions and so forth of that. So that was my entry point into the mining industry and then um, <clears throat> from that through sheer osmosis I kind of got a bit more of an understanding of how ma- how mining worked. And then towards the end of the project, I ended up being the general manager over in Indonesia. Wow!
1: So, when so was
0: that? This was in two thousand and nine and two thousand and ten. Okay, so you moved to Indonesia. Yeah, yeah, I lived in Indonesia Which for a city? year and a half. Which city, Jakarta? Yeah, it was predominantly in Jakarta. That's where the office was. But yeah. then um, our actual mine sites were in uh, in Sumatra. Okay. So they were in the on in on the western side of Sumatra. Mm-hmm. It was an interesting experience.
1: Did you did you want to go to
0: Indonesia? Yeah, I jumped at the experience. You I, jumped at yeah, it. yeah, yeah. I Why? I've always I've always I've always I've always had a a high tolerance for risk, yes. and in many things in life, I took the the unconventional path. Yeah. Uh, I I didn't see it, you know I didn't see it for as a money making uh, venture, but more as an experience, uh-huh. uh, understanding something. You know, and I've always I've always gravitated to industries and and to you know international secondments for the learning aspect. Mm-hmm. I always liked going to new places, experiencing new things. I've come to realize that, you know, through reflection, that I like to throw myself in the deep end.
1: But you, you have Assyrian parents. Yeah, I do. So what <laughs> yeah, are they? Yes, they, <laughs> yes, they
0: Yeah, they're not very happy. Uh, they yeah. weren't very happy. St- you know, my father's passed away, but my mother's still I alive, and she's yeah, thank you. And, um, you know, she's still not, you know, of all the accomplishments, you know, her... You know, for for you know, a mother's a mother's you know, a mother's son's greatest accomplishment is to get married and have children, right? Which is uh, which is the which is the kind of the final frontier. <laughs> you know, so uh, so I I'm, I um, I'm kind of treasuring my my singledom, but nonetheless, it's uh, I'm sure it's uh, you know the the day will come.
1: Yeah, yeah, I could imagine the response. Ek in Indonesia, was,
0: was Yeah, that? yeah, look at, you know, but, you know, there was many, you know, at that time, there was, there was, there was a few Assyrians that were coming as my, as refugees through Indonesia. Mm-hmm. So it was still on the radar, you know, mm. but, you know, it was, it was, you know, it, it's, it's the unknown.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh My father's very open-minded. Yeah. Uh, my mother was, you know, she was a little bit worried, you know, with the, you know, how it, should be careful, mm, so yeah. on and so forth. But I mean, they were very supportive. They've always been slightly supportive. Mm. Me personally, I'm, I'm very headstrong, you know, Rakhyanin. Yeah. You know, so I've always done what I wanted to do. I never kind, I never listened to anybody. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I was going to ask about Indonesia. Did you find? Comfort in, in in that society.
0: I found a lot more respect than I get here in Australia.
1: Okay, how so and why?
0: <sighs> Look, I think in Australia we still there's still the perception of we're foreigners, mm-hmm. even though we're born here. But you know, when Indonesia, it was kind of it was a it was a very formative moment in that. You know, I was a, a respected business leader over there. People would listen to what I say. People would ask for my opinion. I don't know whether it was just the age the position the kind of the experience and so forth i mean i kind of have that now mm. in some in some degree <clears throat> but that's kind of that's come after you know that's come after a whole bunch of bits and pieces yeah, right yeah, yeah 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 you know yeah. but but it was that it was really that that was the that experience in indonesia yeah. what what it was what drove me to get an education and to really, you know, because I enjoyed it. Yeah, I enjoyed international business. I enjoyed uh, setting up the company. I enjoyed.
1: When you say education, you started work out after high school. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So I don't, you didn't I don't go have. have a, to uni. I
0: didn't go to university. I don't have an undergraduate degree.
1: Okay, but you have a PhD now.
0: Yeah, I do. Yeah.
1: So, what was the path, and how did the path come about for you for educating? Or having higher levels of education? Well,
0: I mean, I started off like many kind of mature age students who who sit at the cusp of middle management and are thinking, well, how do I take that next step up? Well, you know, we automatically revert to, oh, well, I don't have an education. So I'll seek out something. And the the normal degree that's sought after these days is an MBA, an executive MBA, especially for people who don't have an undergraduate degree. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a plethora of them online and so forth. And I gravitated towards that, thinking that, you know, the MBA will give me that boost up into upper management and so forth. Right. You know, from that corporate perspective. But I kind of also knew, you know, deep down inside is that, the days of corporate for me were over. Mm. I was at that. I was at a position where I didn't want to be. I didn't want to be spoken to. I didn't want to take orders from somebody. You know, I mean, this. I. I don't want this to sound arrogant or anything, but those days of taking orders in the, you know, that nine to five kind of, go in. You know, be that cog in some very large, very large structure. were that, over, that for over for you. That was that from that point. You know, that was over.
1: And education was the meal ticket to. Well, to get I out.
0: think education was one of the things, not the meal ticket, right? Okay. You still need drive and tenacity. You know, entrepreneurship requires risk, drive, and tenacity. The risk is, you know, it's easy when you're in my position. You know, no wife, no children, no dependencies, no mortgages, no nothing, right? Mm-hmm. So you can throw your lot in there. And then just you know, if it doesn't work out, well, bad luck, mm. right? And then you can start all over again. Mm. But the drive and the tenacity, you know, you need to have, you need to be driven, and you need to be tenacious. You need to be, you need to be hungry for it. And and I was, and I still am, mm. you know. And it's something that kind of won't go away. But in you know the the drive, the drive and the tenacity has become, you know, m- more smoothed out. Okay. It's more strategic, it's more patient.
1: But that's come with age. That
0: that has come with age, yeah, yeah, I mean, that yeah. That comes with age. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: So, okay, so you, you then embarked on studies yeah, so I start, at a mature age. Yeah, yeah. So you went I, straight into postgraduate yeah. and, and a PhD.
0: Yeah, so I, I, I went into the... I did an MBA. I did my EMBA e at 33. Mm-hmm. Then I did a double master's of a, of an EMBA and a master's of commerce. Mm-hmm. And then from that, I got accepted into the phd program mm-hmm. at rmit in melbourne you know it was bad enough having no undergraduate and going into into the into a masters yeah you know this kind of went to another level yeah because it as a as a as a research candidate it's not it's not it's not like coursework you know you have to be it's it's you know self directed mhm you know, you come up with your own research topic. You come up with your own methodology. You come up with your own literature review. You And then you have to, you have to defend these. Now, and, and unfortunately for me, I had to defend mine four times.
1: Why four times?
0: Well, I originally started as a master's by research and I converted mine to a PhD. PhD. Okay. And the reason I couldn't get straight into the master's is because I didn't have that research background. Mm. So they said, if you just go into the master's by research... You know, if your if your if your research, you know, has the valid has has PhD merit, mm-hmm. then we'll just convert it into a PhD. Yeah. So I, I ended up doing, you know, a, a, def, a, a an initial defence, then a, you know a midpoint defence mm-hmm. for the masters, and at that midpoint defence, it actually converted into the PhD. Okay. And then I had to do another two after that as well.
1: Yeah. Let's circle back to Indonesia yeah. just for one second. Did your time there give you the background and did it give you some context and perspective about your writing with regard to geopolitics? And I'll just introduce that because one of the things that I've found with George was his articles uh, written in the South China Morning Post, which is a a most prominent uh, English-language newspaper in, in Hong Kong and southern China. Uh, I found George's uh, writing in that newspaper and I was very surprised. And so I wanted to ask, how did you come about or how did you get to write in that newspaper?
0: Yeah, look, you're right in the sense that looking into living in Indonesia and watching the emerging markets grow. And you can see those emerging markets, especially around infrastructure,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: how they were growing and they were growing exponentially. You know, there, there was a lot of... And I, I've i also done many trips to China too.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I was fortunate enough in 2012 to visit China and India at the same, you know, within six months of each mm-hmm, other. Mm-hmm. And it's very telling. <clears throat> I know we don't like to talk about, you know, political models yeah. so much. But if you, you know, we com- in Australia, we compare our democracy or a Western liberal democracy to China's kind of... Communist system, yeah. But when you compare China's communist system to the Indian system of democracy, where both of them have very much the same characteristics, mm-hmm. you know, resource dependent, huge populations, mm-hmm. developing you know, the developing the you know the, the need for and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, you know, China is in you know China is light years ahead of the mm-hmm. Indian model. Yeah, you know, so it kind of be, you know you have to one has to ask the question. Yeah what system is best for large economies, Mm -hmm. right? You know, and this, you can go back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau and and his book, right, where he talks about large states need to be autocratic, small states can be democratic, Mm -hmm. right? But however, in the the discourse that we have, especially from a Western perspective, the model is Western liberal democracies are the best way to bring prosperity to people. Mm-hmm. you know giving individuals a voice and so forth but you know kind of you know we've seen that China has kind of broken that broken that 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 proposition or that thesis right however for how long we really don't know mm. right? but however you can see if China's progress is is an indicator you know if progress is an indicator then we can see that it's certainly working for China you know it's maybe not you know the the, the, the democratic route in India. Might not, you know, you know, as works, but however, not as fast, not as the rate of change as you'd expect, right?
1: Yep. So, how'd you get to write for South China Morning Post? Yeah,
0: the it was in 2016, Donald Trump got elected. Mm-hmm. Uh, naively, I thought that the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank, the AIIB, would be a, um, a, a very strategic part, could be a strategic partner to the Trump administration, especially with uh, back then there was. I think it was two or three trillion dollars worth of infrastructure that needed to be repaired and built and so forth, yep. and you know the Chinese were awash with money. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, I mean, we can all, you know, uh, you know, with especially with U.S. treasuries and so forth. Yeah, um, and they could, you know, they could work together and kind of work harmoniously, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, but you know, it was a very naive. It was a very naive article I wrote it. They they wanted to know who I was and so forth. You know, I told them I was a PhD candidate, so on and so on and so on. Yeah. They liked it, and they published it, and I've been publishing ever since. Okay. You know, and there's a and there's a few. There's about ten articles that I've written for them. I have, I mean, you would have seen. I've got my own dedicated page on their op-ed. Yeah. In their op-ed section, and so forth.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen that.
0: Yeah, and um, there's there's a lot of controversial articles that I've written,
1: and you know, well, controversial in a, in in a Western context. Well,
0: I think you know, for the wider audience, the most controversial. There was two that were the most, that were controversial. The first one was that when Trump announced the trade war with China, you know, I I think I was the first person in the world to predict that um, that China would win, and I looked at that through my through the discipline of strategic management, mm-hmm. you know, my academic discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second one was is that I actually predicted that Trump would win the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't win. Oh, the 2019, I think, sorry, it was. And oh, no, the, the, the presidential election. Yeah, yeah, that 2020, was 2020, yeah. 2020. Um, <clears throat> because the vote came in, yeah. Anyway, yeah. so the article spells out why I think he would win. And one of the largest and one of the biggest factors was the Hunter Biden issue, yeah, and he's. But you got that wrong. Yeah, I got it wrong. Yes, <laughs> I did get it wrong. I did get it wrong. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I still, I still think that, and in that article back, and that was written, in, that was written in the August before, before the election. Right. My argument was is that Trump will will look to capitalize on Hunter Biden's background. Yep. as a way to discredit Joe Biden. Yeah. And you can see that the New York Post article was completely shut out of all social media. Yeah. And it's kind of come back now with many commentators saying that that it would have been, it could have been Uh, you know, a factor that could have swung voters. Mm -mm. But anyway, I mean, that's the history of it.
1: How do you tie... So you've obviously got a bit of an audience with your geopolitical articles uh, in the South China Morning Post, and you've got a consulting business, RBV Consulting. Yep. I wanted to ask, you're also a Syrian patriot. I I could say that about you. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I wanted to ask, how do you... Reconcile, or do you? How do you tie up what you know about geopolitics with our own geopolitical plight?
0: Our people in our ancestral homelands are dwindling, mm-hmm. and now we live in the diaspora. Yeah, and in the diaspora, we are settled.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We're we're becoming more educated. Mm-hmm. We're becoming wealthier, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we should we should not see how we can rekindle our roots back again into the homeland. Right. Yeah, I think that everybody has a patriotic duty to their people. You know, I mean, we, are, we live in Australia, yeah. we're Australians in some way, but we're also we're Assyrians. Yeah. And, you know, as I, I look at what my skill set is, and, you know, my skill set is in business, and you know, in business and informing business, mm-hmm. and in business management and so forth. Yeah, and that's why we came up with the, with the uh, Assyrian, uh, you know, business council of Australia. Mhm. You know, to kind, to which is to, how I met you. Yeah. So we, you know, we're kind, we're in the, we're in the latter stages of company formation and so forth, mm-hmm. and we'll be looking to roll it out towards the second half. This of This is like a chamber of commerce. This exactly a chamber of commerce. Okay. One of the things we need. As a community, is we need to enrich its members. You know, with a when we have money and resources, with money we have options, mm-hmm. and we can do whatever we like. With it, mm-hmm. you know, we want Assyrians to be enterprising,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? We want Assyrian enterprises, but in order to have Assyrian enterprises, we need individuals to be enterprising,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and we need we need to provide some sort of framework or some sort of quasi-institution that, that gives them the encouragement and the support and the connection with peers
1: yep. and so forth. Yep.
0: And that's what we're looking at.
1: Yep. You know? That's good. Uh, going back to Assyrians and geopolitics, what would you make of our situation today in the homeland geopolitically?
0: This is the early 20th century, 2.0. Right. Mm-hmm. you know, you know, before we had the Sykes pickett and the English and so forth, mm-hmm. who we became cannon fodder to. Yes, and then you, know, then once the English had gone, then it, we became the cannon fodder again to the U.S. and, and the other Western powers. Mm-hmm. You know, so you know, they might talk about you know liberation and Christianity and freedom and all this other sort of stuff, but it's, but you know, in the words of Lord Palmerston, you know we only we only have interests as as he said you know these countries only care about their own interests that's right and you know we at the end of the day we're just like everybody else if we have to be thrown under the bus then we have to be thrown under the bus right so you know it is incumbent on us as a people to really you know really reclaim our our identity and our position in the in the middle east
1: how do we assert our own interests
0: well we have to assert our own interests now by rec- by understanding that it's a, that there's a dire situation right and then coalescing putting away all whatever whatever grievances we have in the past mm-hmm. we need to put away any kind of factionalism mm-hmm. that we have we need to be a we need to be a unified front
1: mm-hmm.
0: and of and and unified in many ways you know we need to look at other cultures and how they've done it but there's one factor that that remains is, is that we need to we need to build wealth within that community that wealth as i said before wealth will give us options it is the it is the bedrock mm. for everything that we do mm. and then you know we can we can provide aid we can lobby we can we can take advantage of foreign ownership requirements in those lands mm-hmm. to buy land to to protect it and so forth mm-hmm. You know, so this is where we have to, but, the, but like I go back again, you know, we need, we need a wealthy, we need a wealthy diaspora
1: yep. okay.
0: and a wealthy diaspora that's, that's, that's willing to, that's willing to share some of that wealth mm-hmm. for the greater good.
1: Mm. Do you feel like our past has hindered us?
0: Of course it has. I mean, I don't want to say, you know, we shouldn't be, we, we, we don't want, to be the perpetual victim, but we are. I mean, you know, how many times have we been displaced? Many, many. No, but I mean, let's count. At least it. four. Four. I mean, there's about I've counted six. I mean, in the last in just over a century. So when we when we look at that, what other people out there have been displaced six times? None that I can think of. None that I can think of either. You know, there are le- we have we we are we have legitimate we have legitimate right to say that we are arguably the greatest victim right, of the 20th century from the, the 1915 to 1933 to, to the gulf war in 1990 then we have the 2003 then we had ISIS in Iraq and then ISIS in Syria mm-hmm. right this has been a huge destabilizing factor yeah and our people have dwind as our people have moved some people have moved you know intra Middle East in the interim of the Middle East mm-hmm. while a, a, a significant amount have have fled overseas right our our presence in the Middle East has lessened and lessened mm-hmm. our influence in the Middle East has lessened and lessened right mm-hmm. and then you know there's that intergenerational trauma that comes with it as well mm. you know I you know I I have to recount this that my you know one of our one of my uncles he's my well he's my dad's first cousin you know on his deathbed, which was just a few years ago, the last breath he took, right, he took his thumb and he and he ran it over his throat and he said genocide. Right, and then he closed his eyes and he didn't speak after that, and then he died two days later. Right, yeah, you know, that is that trauma still exists. I mean, we remember it, you remember it, but you know this 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 is this is very it's still very real for us it's not even it's not something that we can say happened a century or a century or a half ago we can still remember people that experienced it you know we weren't that we weren't that 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 disconnected from those who actually had to run away from the Semele, right
1: but what's that meant for us as as a people today has that made us more risk averse
0: it has made us more risk averse I, I i think we've 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 done what 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 people usually do is, is, they they seek safety, and they don't, and they don't want to, and they don't want to experience those kinds of risks ever again. That's why we find comfort in Australia, in Sweden, in these kinds of countries that are very peaceful. We blend in. We don't want to stick our heads out. We don't want to rock the boat, so to speak. Mm. Yeah, this was the the default. Uh, approach that our parents took, right. right? You know, we still held, you know, we still had the church, you know, here and the social, social, you know, the the the, the social institutions and so forth. Mm-hmm. But as a as a, as political movements and so forth, there were some sort of some sort of uh, initiatives that were taken, but they never really took off. Yeah, right. You know, we just we didn't we we were always and we we're always fearful. I remember my dad used to say to me. Don't get involved in politics. Why? But He was always the, of the mindset of politics in, in, in the Middle East, where if you were a communist or something, that wasn't something like, oh, you know, you were just branded as a communist. Yeah. You know, you could be at best, you know, imprisoned. Yeah. And at worst, executed.
1: It's because there was uh, a lot of violence attached to to being active in politics in the Middle East
0: yeah absolutely then and now and and still now right yeah. there are some very brave individuals in the Middle East uh, especially in northern Iraq mm. I know there's a guy called crapi Benjamin mm-hmm. he's he's, 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 he's a, been a guest to yeah the yeah I uh, you know I follow him on Twitter and he's he's very very active especially in regards to some of the human rights abuses that have that have been you know that have that have happened in uh, in northern Iraq yes but yeah he's a we have to ask ourselves what does the, what does the diaspora do for him good question i
1: don't know
0: no i don't know either right however however you know one of the goals is 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 that you know a diaspora that's engaged with what's going on mm-hmm. a diaspora who has the resources to do things about it will not just kind of like and share tweets and posts and so forth they can provide you know substantial material help for individuals such as his and for all the people that are still in the homeland, you, know, you got to remember something is, is that we have it quite easy, yeah, right?
1: We really do,
0: we do have it easy here, you know. And you know, we all like to be Aturaya and umtanaya and all that sort of stuff, but mm-hmm. we, you know, we can't do it from a distance with no risk, yeah, you know? in order for us to. To really band together,
1: but I mean, it's something I noticed, just how risk averse we are as a community in the diaspora and and in 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 a society in twenty twenty three where we really need to be fearless.
0: Well, maybe it's not the fact that we are. We don't, we don't have violence in this society. We no. don't have. Well, maybe it's not the fact that we're risk averse. Maybe it's the fact that we don't have a a body politic who can who can you know for less of a better term you know rally the troops. Or reinvigorate that you know mm. some form of you know nationalistic zeal that sits within us, because mm. well, we all have it. I mean, I mean, I've got you've got a you've got a, you know a, a, you know the a hoodie with a, a Syrian Torah on the front, right? I have Malika Ashur tattooed on me, mm. right? You know, there's there's a don't, there,
1: don't tell me where it is. No,
0: but I'm not going to. <laughs> but I mean, what I'm trying to say is is that we all are, we all have something that is a syrian right, right. and we all and we and we're all quite proud of it i mean you, so you know is it that we're risk averse or is it that there's nothing there's nobody or there's no institution that kind of invigorates that that nationalistic zeal that i was talking about you know and if there was that risk that you talk about will slowly dissipate
1: mm. But we do have. I mean, the community now. I mean, it's got to be self-directed as well.
0: It's got to be self-directed, but it's also got to have leadership that's passionate about it as well. That goes out there. That you know, leadership is about wearing out shoe leather. Yeah. yeah? You can't lead from the back. Yeah. And you need to kind of bring people, right? Mm. Um, and you know, these in, you know the the church has done a fantastic job. You know, I have to say. You know the Church of the East here. Um, Why? Well, they've managed to. They've managed. To, look, I have. To, you know, as somebody, I'm not very religious, right? And yeah. I just want to put it out there. I go to all the churches. I I, I, I don't follow any anyone any one of the whether it's Kha Esri, Hamsho, or Marimari or whatever. Yeah. Kind of respect everybody, yeah. right? However, the Church of the East under the Marimulis over the decade has managed to uh, to achieve a lot. And, you know, in some ways, I, I feel quite sorry for him because he's burdened with the responsibility of not only leading the church, but also being that political leader as well and being strategic, being, you know, setting up school, setting up a nursing home, you know, having the the, 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 the school of Nisibus now, you know, a theological college that they've set up, you know, bringing in migrants, lobbying governments. I mean, this is not the role, you know, this is, this is partly the role of a church head, but this is really the role of a, of, a, of a politician.
1: But that speaks about our community, does it not?
0: Yeah, it does. And it speaks about the factionalism of our community, right? Where we can't, we, like I said, we can't get together and have one body politic that speaks for all of us. You know, it is that, it is that unified front that we need but you know i kind of go back you know one thing that unifies people is money you know i might not like you and so you might not like me mm-hmm. however if there's a, if there's a financial benefit to it you know we put all our differences aside mm-hmm. and we come together to make money yeah mm-hmm. you know so i mean this is the you know the 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 project of the business council you know is not only for you know creating enterprise through you know through entrepreneurship but it's also breaking down those barriers mm-hmm. you know breaking down you know traditional grievances that are for what for nothing yeah for nothing they're rubbish right you know and bringing people together and you know what brings people together it's money right it's wealth it's opportunity mm-hmm. you know
1: in any society in any
0: society in any society you can bring the two fiercest enemies together right over you know you know over a business deal over profit hmm So why can't we do that with our own? hmm You know, and and while we've got all these, we've got all these wonderful institutions and one of all, all these organizations, I think that, again, will set the foundation.
1: Some could argue that's a very cynical way to bring the nation together.
0: Well, you, you know what? I'm a realist. Right? And you can call it cynical, you can call it whatever you like. You know, I come from the school of realism, right? And in that, in, in that school of realism this is what i found works yeah. i mean it's nothing nefarious you know we're not we're not being opportuni- we're not being overly opportunistic here and we're not doing something that's going to harm the community mm. i mean if anything it's the total opposite i mean i can only see the benefit in all this mm. i don't see any downside yeah and i do this for clients i mm-hmm. mean this is my and. the, the you know, I've I, you know I started this with with my colleague and of course you as well. Is is that this is my stock and trade? Why not do it for us? I do it for clients. You know? And 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 I and I have this. You know, I I think I have strategic foresight. Mm, mm.
1: You know? Well, people pay you for that.
0: People pay me for that. You know, I'm all I'm doing is just doing what i do for my clients i add value for my clients
1: yeah okay george morano thank you very very much for joining us on the Assyrian podcast
0: thank you very much Linus. it's my pleasure
1: <laughs> and that was episode 194 of the Assyrian podcast with dr george morano thanks for listening have a great week And next week, episode 195, we don't want to say much, but we're going to go to the movies. Have a great week.